Welcome to the public morality. Benjamin Rush may be one of the least known consequential members of the founding generation. His lack of historical popularity notwithstanding, Rush's influence spanned an array of areas that continue to influence the present day. In addition to being a signer of the Declaration of Independence, Rush was a physician, politician, social reformer, educator, and abolitionist. Moreover, many of the seminal moments of the revolutionary period were choreographed along with Rush's adult life. His response under a pseudonym to the British Parliament's 1773 passage of the Tea Act influenced the Boston Tea Party. Rush also consulted with Thomas Paine in the creation of Common Sense, the 47-page pamphlet published in January 1776 that placed the notion of independence from Great Britain by the 13 colonies into the public discourse. To discuss the life of Benjamin Rush, I'm joined by award-winning journalist, author, and Rush biographer, Stephen Freed. Stephen Freed, welcome to The Public Morality. Good morning. Thanks for having me. When we first reached out to you um, to do the show, about Benjamin Rush, you responded, I'm paraphrasing, but you said you would welcome any opportunity to talk about Rush. Could you explain your enthusiasm and why is it important that we remember Rush in 2024? Well, my enthusiasm for Rush, first of all, is he's he's the sort of the lost founding father. And I have to say that um, as I got interested in him and started writing about him, I realized you can't really tell so many stories about the American Revolution without him. But the truth is that we have told a lot of them without him. He has been left out of a lot of conversations, a lot of important conversations. So, um, and I, you know, so I do feel, in a way, if you write a biography of Rush, you become a bit of a Rush evangelist. Not because everything Rush did was perfect, but because Rush is the primary uh, speaker and the primary chronicler of many things that we take for granted that we understand about the American Revolution that we need to understand better. Uh- Take a moment, if you would, to talk about some of those things. I know he and his father-in-law were the only father-in-law, son-in-law, tandem to sign the Declaration of Independence. But what are the things about the, the American historical narrative and Benjamin Rush sort of coincide? Okay, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a long list, but I'll, I'll do the greatest hits. I mean, Benjamin Rush, as a young doctor, um, wrote the first important treatise um, against slavery in 1773, um, he became, you know, when he was later became a signer, he was the first signer who was openly against slavery. Um, he uh, wrote the uh, um, proclamation that led to the Boston Tea Party. Um, he co-authored it with other writers in Philadelphia. He signed the Declaration of Independence. He was one of the first of the founders to uh, insist on separation of church and state. And uh, he made many important contributions to medicine, to um, revolutionary war medicine, uh, and later to mental health. I mean, he was the first uh, medical person to talk about mental health and addiction as illnesses needed to be treated medically rather than uh, things that were um, just weaknesses and uh, problems of faith. And uh, he later uh, became, you know, he was best friends with John Adams uh, and Thomas Jefferson. And there's really no way to understand the relationship between Adams and Jefferson, you know, our second and third president, without understanding their friendship with Rush, because Rush was in between them in lots of different ways. And, um, you know, later in life, it was Rush was the reason that the two of them got together. They didn't speak for 12 years. And Rush uh, is the one who got them back together. And um, 
they outlived him. So uh, he also made uh, many, many important contributions to medicine. Uh, his, his contributions are, are and also education. I mean, Rush was the first to propose a public school system and to lay out how it should be. He founded several universities himself. And uh, he was very, very uh, involved in issues of race. And I think because he did own one slave during a brief period in the 18, in 1780s, hit all his other slavery stuff is, is almost dismissed by history, which is too bad. I mean, all people, uh, all white people who had slaves during this time are in a complicated situation if they were against slavery but owned a slave. So I'm not trying to uh, pretend that isn't the case. Um, but Rush was the most one of the most active writers against slavery. Uh, he was in charge of the anti-slavery group for the whole country. And so his work on race is fascinating. And then secondarily, you know, his work in the yellow fever epidemic is its own drama uh, about which books have been written. Uh, and some of those things we're going to touch on in this conversation. Um, I'd like to uh, just on a personal note, have you discuss how you actually became interested in Benjamin Rush? Because you are clearly a Rush evangelist, which with good reason, by the way. But uh, how did you get interested in Benjamin Rush? Um, you know, I uh, grew up in writing as a magazine writer and uh, started writing books, uh, originally uh, contemporary journalism books, and then I started writing history books. And when I started writing narrative history books, it, it occurred to me that I live about four blocks from Independence Hall. And uh, like many Philadelphians, did not know anywhere near enough about the American Revolution. So I actually looked for topics around the American Revolution that would be interesting. I almost wrote a book about the history of the Liberty Bell. Uh, and researched it for a long time and wrote a big piece about it. But the Liberty Bell turns out is not a human being. Um, and so after a point, it's hard to write about a thing. And so I was really looking. And I also, um, in my other life as a journalist, I write a lot about mental health. So I'm very interested in mental health history. And, you know, when I came upon Benjamin Rush's story, so undercovered, um, nothing re uh, recent had been written at all. And um, nobody who had been interested in mental health had ever taken it on either. It just seemed like a great opportunity. Um, but I will tell you that I had no idea what a great story it was when I started. It just got more and more rich as I read more and more of the original materials and connected all the dots between all the people. You know, Rush was, besides being this fascinating writer, he was everybody's doctor. So he knew all the founding fathers and all the people that we hear about all the time on a very intimate level. And that's the kind of writing that I like to do. So Rush really knew these people. Their letters are very personal and fascinating. And, you know, my goal here was to deal with all the stuff that we know in a public way, but also see the private lives of these people. And Rush is somebody who really lets you have that. In addition to, in my words, uh, Rush being a doctor to the stars, if you will. <laughs> okay. um, talk about Rush's relationship uh, with specifically with George Washington, because I, as I understand, there was some schism there. Sure, there was. So um, originally Rush and, and Washington had a very good relationship. You know, keep in mind that most of these people met during the First Continental Congress and Rush was not involved in the First Continental Congress. But when the First Continental Congress came to Philadelphia, uh, Washington and all the others would eat at the doctors' houses. I mean, the doctors were sort of like the hosts of the Continental Congress. So Rush met Washington during the First Continental Congress. He was a huge supporter of Washington, got along well with Washington, and they were friendly. They were friendly. Second Continental Congress, obviously, Rush was a signer. Um, and uh, interestingly, even though he was pretty young, you know, he was in his 30s when he signed the Declaration, uh, because he was the most prominent doctor uh, of his of his day, 
he was in charge of um, the medical committee for the Continental Congress. So he was in a way Washington's boss when the Revolutionary War started, when it came to medicine. Uh, so they had a very close relationship uh, for many years, and Rush was very supportive. Uh, during the fall of 1776, of course, you know, we were getting our butts kicked in the Revolutionary War. Uh, it was a very dark time, and many people were asking what was going wrong, including Rush. And Rush was friendly with some of the generals. Um, Rush did uh, suggest uh, to some people that Washington had put the wrong people in charge. And this got back to Washington through, again, this is one of these very personal things. So Rush uh, sent a letter uh, to a third party who both knew each other uh, and, and it, it repeating some of the things that people had said about Washington. Uh, he um, then told Washington about the letter and Washington never forgave Rush for this letter. So there was acrimony between them. They were sort of frenemies uh, from the very dark winter of 1777 on. Um, but, you know, they also had many people in common, including Rush's mother-in-law, um, Anna Stockton, who was very close to Washington. So people had a lot invested in at least keeping the two of them friendly enough to do business. Um, but when Washington was dying, he made sure that people knew that Rush had written these letters that he thought undermined him at a dark time. And that's part of the reason that Rush gets criticized for his relationship with Washington. But, you know, like everything with Rush, it was complicated. Uh, when we think of the founding generation, and I'm thinking about when you sort of outlined uh, some of the Benjamin Rush greatest hits. Mm -hmm. But Rush is usually at best on the second tier of that founding generation. Why, in your view, having written about Rush, is he not on that first tier? Why is it more known publicly about Benjamin Rush? Bad PR. Um, you know, no, it's really it's, it's actually really an interesting story. You know, the, the, I, the end of my book is about sort of the, the afterlife of Benjamin Rush. Because, you know, when Benjamin Rush died, um, John Adams said that his death was the most important death since Washington and Franklin. So um, and many people felt that way. But here's the thing, Be because of what I mentioned about the this this letter that he wrote about Washington, which always made Washington upset. After Washington died, Washington was like the god of the American Revolution. You could not criticize Washington. And Rush's family was so worried that any publicity about him after he died in 1813 would circle back to this letter and that they would be in trouble because, you know, that Russia's son uh, had a government job. They re relied on the government, um, you know, to be in favor of them. So the Rush family um, did everything it, it could to sort of tamp down anything about Russia's legacy, except his medical legacy because of this frenemy relationship with Washington. I doubt that they thought it would last as long as it did since he died in 1813 and many of the things that he wrote that were suppressed for this reason didn't come to the public until the 1940s and 50s, when the family, which had been controlling many of these letters, had to sell them uh, at a public auction. And it, it was after this auction that we learned a lot of things about the different founders. But if, if you had known what Benjamin Rush's reputation was when he died in 1813, you never would have believed that he would be considered a second-tier founder, because the biggest first living first-tier founders who were Jefferson and Adams would have told you that Rush mattered as much as them. Uh, you mentioned Adams and Jefferson. Did, did they contribute uh, 
in the suppression of information about Rush because he had intimate details about them? Were they contributors at all in the suppression? Well, the, there's there's two as aspects of suppression. One is suppressing Rush's story itself. Adams and Jefferson, um, as, I, as I explain in the book, when, when Rush died, Adams and Jefferson had been carrying on an unbelievably personal correspondence with Rush. Uh, after the, you know, they Rush was in Philadelphia and they were in Philadelphia until 1800 when the Capitol moved. After the Capitol moved, Adams lost the election. He went back to Massachusetts, never came back to Washington. And Jefferson was in, in Washington and then home in Virginia. So this was all done by letters. And Rush was a great kind of therapist, and he would ask really personal questions, and these guys would tell him everything. Um, and a lot of their letters were, um, like the letter that Jefferson sent Rush when he was president to get him to start uh, helping Meriwether Lewis to start the Lewis and Clark expedition. Half of it was about what he wanted Lewis to do when he came to visit Rush, and the other half was about his persistent diarrhea. So the other part of these letters is they were very personal about health issues too. So when Rush died, Jefferson wanted his letters back, and Adams discouraged the family from sharing. Again, these are the letters that they sent Rush, that Rush had in his hands. Jefferson was afraid because Jefferson's letters about religion, Rush and Jefferson talked about religion a lot. And Jefferson, while not a deist, um, was not a full-throated Christian. Uh, and uh, he later, um, encouraged by Rush, wrote was considered what was called the Jefferson Bible, uh, where he took out all the miracles and only wrote about Jesus as a person. So he and Rush would have fascinating religious conversations. Rush would have those kinds of conversations with lots of people. So there's an aspect of this where the letters they had written Rush, they wanted to make sure that those got suppressed. And the family did suppress them. Um, they gave a couple of them back to Jefferson, but the other ones were held by the Rush family for over 100 years. Um, and the, But the issues of Rush's uh, political um, legacy was sort of a separate issue, and that was because of the, they want, the family wanted to protect itself from the legacy of Washington. Keep in mind, you know, Rush's young son, Richard Rush, was almost as important. You know, Richard Rush and John Quincy Adams are the only next generation of the founding fathers who mattered in American government. I mean, John Quincy Adams obviously was president. Richard Rush was secretary, uh, was attorney general. He was secretary of state. He ran as the vice presidential candidate with John Quincy Adams. So they he had a legacy to, uh, to, to save um, while he was a public servant for many decades after his father's death. Uh, in addition to this rich conversation about Benjamin Rush, one of my takeaways is going to be that it's very unlikely that Thomas Jefferson would have gotten the evangelical vote had he ran in 2024. So that's just one of my personal takeaways here. Um, yeah, and I will say, you know, there is there is so much, especially on online, um, cherry picking of the religious beliefs of these founding fathers, because of course, you know, founding fathers, you know, they're like the tofu of American history. You know, you can add whatever uh, spices you want. And so the number of people claiming uh, Jefferson and Rush uh, as being their religious leaders, especially more evangelical people. I mean, the biggest thing Benjamin Rush believed in was that America was a country that did not have a religious past, a background, and that all religions needed to be free. So anybody invoking Rush in, in a way suggesting that even though Rush was concerned about whether the Bible would be used in schools and things like that, but Rush's biggest concern was religious freedom uh, and that all religions would be able to um, 
practice the way they wanted and people who had no religion would be able to practice the way they wanted and that there was that America was not a place where anybody was going to ever tell anybody what their religion should be or what their religious uh, related practices should be. Some uh, historians hold that uh, Alexander Hamilton, for example, would have the least trouble among the founding generation adapting to the present day in that he could recognize the the, the current financial system is part of his original creation. Could we hold similar for Rush in terms of mental health? Would he recognize certain things in, in 21st century mental health today? Yeah, I think Rush would be very happy to find out that while it took the mental health establishment another hundred years to come back around to what he was saying, uh, because, you know, when you go through all the Freudian period where all mental illness is caused by bad mothering and all these other things, I mean, you know, Benjamin Rush believed that mental illnesses were diagnosable, that they were similar in different people because the illnesses were the illnesses and that we needed to use the best possible medicine to treat them. He also recognized early on that addiction and mental illness were different and needed to be treated differently. And he actually uh, suggested a sober house which would be the first place that somebody would be able to dry out and learn better practices so that they wouldn't, at that point, alcoholism was the most important issue. Uh, but I think Rush would recognize it. And I was fascinated because, you know, most of the history of mental health is really told through the eyes of uh, two doctors, one in England and one in France, as if they invented everything in the 1890s. And we were fascinated to find out that the same things that these people get credit for, Benjamin Rush was teaching his medical student, 1790s, I'm sorry. Benjamin Rush was teaching his medical student in the in the 1780s, almost a decade before. So, I mean, these things were in the air for somebody who understood them, but it still took a really long time to convince people that mental illness and addiction and, and also epilepsy, anything that was a, a, about the brain, that it wasn't caused because people weren't uh, didn't have enough faith or that they were weak. But Rush understood this from the beginning, and he he understood it, unfortunately, because he had it in his family. Uh, you know, Rush's son, John, who was a physician, um, and who wrote his thesis at Penn about preventing suicide, later became floridly mentally ill and lived his last decades of life at Pennsylvania Hospital in the uh, psychiatric ward that his father had created by revolutionizing care. I mean, when Rush took over the psychiatric ward, people were chained to the ground. Um, people were allowed to pay to come see them and point at them. Uh, and there was no treatment for them at all. Rush unchained them, changed all those rules. There was no heat in these buildings because the mentally ill were believed to not to be impervious to cold. Uh, and Rush changed all of this. And he really was the first of the doctors of this era uh, that began doing more enlightened care. And following up on that, would could we consider that Rush wrote one of the first of what in a 21st century language we would call uh, self-help books? Well, you know, interestingly, he wrote a self-help pamphlet uh, very early on, which is very much about exercise and uh, that, that he wrote in, in 1773. Um, and that that book that that pamphlet is very much about you know exercise, taking care of yourself, better dieting, and and yeah, I think that's the first self help book. Um, although we also have to remember that pamphlets weren't books. Pamphlets were longer, you know, printed things that people made money on, but they weren't full books. He did later write the first full book in America on mental illness, uh, the last book that he wrote before he died that was published in eighteen twelve. Um, 
But, you know, the thing about Rush that people don't really pay enough attention, Rush wrote a lot. Part of his part of what's fascinating about him is he was really a great uh, person to try to explain ideas to the public. Uh, and he explained a lot of medical ideas to the public. But, yes, he did write what I would consider to be the first self-help pamphlet uh, before he became famous, before America was uh, freed from England. And then at the end of his life, his last book was uh, the first book in America about mental illness and addiction. What was uh, Benjamin, talk about the significance rather of Benjamin Russian uh, meeting uh, Benjamin Franklin while studying abroad? Because that was significant in Russia's life when he was, uh, go ahead. Sure. I mean, the funny thing is, is that, you know, the Rushes lived down the street from the Franklins um, uh, in Philadelphia, but Rush, as a young man, had never met Franklin. Franklin was abroad much of the time that Rush was growing up. And so uh, when Rush went to medical school, he was encouraged, you know, when you went abroad, you basically reached out to the people in America who were abroad to help you make letters of introduction. So he and another colleague who he went to medical school with wrote to Franklin. Uh, Franklin didn't get back to them until they were already in medical school in Edinburgh. But in medical school, Franklin wrote to him and told him to come to London. And when they finally met, um, you know, Franklin really took Rush under his wing he introduced him to leading writers, to leading doctors, to leading political people in London. And then he actually paid for Rush. He loaned Rush the money so that Rush could go to France and uh, see the, the different world of medicine and culture and politics in France. So he really took Rush under his wing. And by the time Rush returned from medical school, you know, when Rush went to medical school, he had no relationship with Franklin at all. By the time he returned to America from medical school in 17. Uh, 69, he was under, you know, he had letters of introduction from Benjamin Franklin. He was known to be Franklin's friend. And he and Franklin wrote often uh, about medical and political issues, even though, you know, Franklin didn't get back to America for a number of years after that. But he was considered, you know, a, a young a protege of Franklin's. And, you know, keep in mind, Rush was of the next generation. Rush was in his 20s when a lot of the founders that we think of were in their 40s and 50s. So he was a kid. Uh, to these people. And, um, you know, when he signed the declaration, he was in his early 30s. So he was much younger than them. And he brought the next generation's views. And, and let's keep in mind, just just to back up for just a moment, talk about at the time uh, of Franklin and Russia's meeting, talk about just for a moment, the stature of Benjamin Franklin, because he was larger than Washington at that at that time. Is that correct? Oh, sure. I mean, Washington only became a big deal nationally after he took over the Revolutionary Army in the 1770s. It wasn't that he wasn't a general before, but it's just that it wasn't the same thing. Franklin was the leading public intellectual of America. Uh, you know, keep in mind, Philadelphia was the center of intellectual life in America, regardless of what, you know, uh, Hamilton play wants to make it out. And, um, you know, so and Franklin was the leading intellectual there and a newspaper editor there. He was very widely published. People knew him. He was heroic and he had been sent to Europe as a representative, first of the state of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, later a representative of the newly formed government. So but Franklin was like the grandfather. You know, people don't think of, they think of him as the father of the revolution. He's almost the grandfather because he was much older than everybody else. He had a lot of health problems. Interestingly, late late in his life, you know, Rush was close to him in the 1780s and was like taking care of him uh, because he was really ill. Uh, they, you know, he could barely leave the house uh, because of his illness. Um, 
and was not going to be invited to the Constitutional Convention. Rush insisted that he be invited, even though he was ill, even if they had to literally carry him over so that he could be there. But he was older and not well. But the relationship between the two of them was fascinating for another reason. Rush was very religious. Um, and he wanted uh, Franklin to be religious, but Franklin was the most open deist of his time. So, you know, Rush was always wondering if, what, as Franklin was getting sicker and sicker, whether he would have, you know, a come to Jesus moment, because it really meant a lot to meant a lot to Rush. Uh, but the thing that is interesting about Rush is that he really wrestled with the fact that he found it surprising when people were deists, when they did not believe. Um, and he always wanted to know about other people's religions. He was one of the first to write about um, Jewish ritual. You know, he writes in his uh, diaries about going to a Jewish wedding, which is actually the first uh, documented Jewish wedding in America that we know about. I mean, obviously they had them before that, but it's the first one that anybody wrote about. He also wrote about a, a, a circumcision, which was probably the first time anybody had written about a Jewish circumcision. So he was really interested in all this, but he and Franklin just had endless conversations about politics, about medicine. Uh, they certainly, these conversations starting with Franklin certainly formed the American Philosophical uh, Association. You know, that was uh, really the place where people talked about these scientific issues. And they started a number of other organizations. The we don't know the organizations anymore, but we know the writings that come through. I mean, the writings that Rush did about prison overcrowding um, and questioning uh, different sentencing issues, those were developed with an organization that he and Franklin and Thomas Paine and others were in right before Franklin died. So their relationship is quite interesting. I will note um, that the I was told by the editor of the Franklin letters that they believed a lot of the correspondence between Rush and Franklin was lost because a lot of it was international and because some of it would have been uh, against the queen um, or the king, uh, the belief is that some of it was thrown overboard when, excuse me, when ships were um, uh, taken over for fear that uh, it, it would be found. So there's a lot of missing correspondence between Rush and and Franklin and between Franklin and others. One of the reasons I want, we wanted to have you on talk about Benjamin Rush, because I mean, there's so many ways we could go, but one of the aspects of Rush that I, really found fascinating was you had just mentioned that, that in many ways he was deeply religious, but, but he's sort of cut against the grain of his contemporaries because he's on the cutting edge of mental health. He's on the cutting edge uh, when it comes to religious persecution. In your research, is, is there anything that explains how Rush gets to these, uh, these positions that are not, that were not the norm in his time? Yeah, it's actually pretty interesting. I mean, first of all, you know, Rush was second Presbyterian, um, which was a reform movement of the Presbyterian movement in America. That's like the fourth most powerful religion at that time. So Rush felt as a young man and as a doctor trying to build his practice that he was in a way religiously persecuted because he wasn't Church of England and he wasn't in Philadelphia, a Quaker. So he understood that there that you could believe in Jesus and still be on the wrong side of religion. And so he understood the politics of religion. And I think he understood early on that you needed to be secular about that. Um, and so he came to those beliefs beforehand. And he, both Franklin and his mentor at the University of Edinburgh were deists. So if you, if you believe very strongly that somebody who was your hero didn't believe in organized religion, you had to figure that out for yourself. So Rush had these ideas before he mattered as a writer. And he had really worked them through. And he also, 
Rush just loved religious writing and religious speaking, and he would change churches based on who was giving sermons if they were good sermonizers. So he really believed very much in the creation of churches, of, of houses of worship. And he, you know, he was responsible for creating the first two African-American houses of worship in America. And uh, he also helped found other churches because he believed, you know, it's interesting, there's religion and then there's houses of worship. You know, they're kind of two different things in a way. So, but he was always asking people what their religious beliefs were. He always wanted to have conversations about it. Um, it's really interesting. He also uh, is somebody who quotes from uh, the, you know, he, he views the Old Testament and the New Testament equally and is more likely to quote from uh, the Hebrew Bible. I'm Jewish, so I, I pay attention to these things a little bit more uh, than a lot of uh, Christian scholars from his time period. And so because, you know, he wasn't trying to uh, do anything except be a good American, a good Christian, a good person. Um, and he wrote a lot about this. Now, interestingly, um, I think all people, when they get older and they're more disappointed by life uh, in some ways, will throw off some of the views they had when they were younger. I tend to look with at, at, at Rush, Adams, and Jefferson specifically and focus more on the points of view they had when their points of view mattered, meaning they were being public intellectuals, they were in office, they were overseeing things, than the years when they were both, they were sort of like three cranky founders um, writing to each other, uh, astonished what had happened in the world. So, um, but, you know, you can cherry pick lots of quotes from people from all different parts of their lives. But the, the part of Russia's life that I find most interesting and I think most informed America was his early life, his life as a doctor and as a legislator, and his life being sort of the, the holy host of Philadelphia during the 10 years when Philadelphia was the U.S. capital, which is a, a time period that I think people do not pay enough attention to. 1790 to 1800 is a really formative time in America. Um, and it's the only time when Washington, Jefferson, Adams, all these people are in the same place um, trying to figure out what American government is supposed to be and not just fighting a war. One, one of the aspects of Rush that I find most fascinating was Rush, Rush was not only opposed to slavery, but he was a vocal proponent of equality, which seems to be a rare combination in the late 18th century, early 19th century. Your thoughts about Rush and, and, that, and that particular aspect of his life? Yeah, it, I mean, one, it's amazing that somebody was this open about those feelings. Two, it's amazing that almost nobody knows this today. You know, Rush is not seen as the visionary that he was at that time which is amazing. I mean, when you look at just just his relationship uh, with Richard Allen and Absalom Jones and the creation of the first black churches, you know, this is a, a, a fascinating aspect of America, both in terms of Russia's life and in terms of Jones and, and uh, um, Allen's lives. And, and it's kind of lost. It's so dramatic. It's all tied up with the yellow fever epidemic. And it's really fascinating to me that people don't know as much about it. But Rush was you know, look, Rush believed early on that not only was he against slavery, but part of his understanding of mental health came from his appreciation of the uh, PTSD, obviously he didn't call it that, um, that, that former slaves had. I mean, he believed that slavery uh, was psychologically debilitating the people in ways that was provable, and that a lot of the things that white people criticized uh, black people for were things they should have sympathized for because they had created, which was you know, that's pretty revolutionary thinking uh, 
for for all of American history. And I don't think people understand that people were writing about things like that in the 1770s before the American Revolution. Also, you know, you have to keep in mind, Rush did not have the political power to get slavery overturned. And much to his chagrin, I mean, these people had to deal with a world where Alexander Hamilton made a deal after the war to pay off the war debt and move forward, which basically kicked the slavery issue 20 years in advance. So they couldn't do anything about it except to focus on improving civil rights. And those civil rights had to do with work. They had to do with law. There were organizations to try to make sure that, um, you know, that that, that black uh, people could borrow money to, to, to start businesses. Uh, so they, they couldn't fight slavery because slavery was codified and it was not going to be changed in mostly in their lifetime. So they focused on the non-slavery issues in terms of one, making sure that people who were free got to stay free and the people were able to work and raise families and get opportunities. And so it's really interesting um, that that later slavery became the open issue as we lead towards the Civil War, but Rush was long gone by that point. So during his time, what people were focused on were much more on civil rights issues because they couldn't, they knew they couldn't overturn slavery. And look, I'm not saying Rush was a perfect person, and I'm not saying that some of the things that he wrote at that time uh, wouldn't make somebody cringe today. I mean, that's true of almost everybody. But his record in terms of supporting uh, all things African American in in Philadelphia and in the country is, you know, it's it's indisputable. But people overlook it. And I should say that the church started by uh, Rush with along with Richard Allen and Absalom Jones is still in existence in Philadelphia today. Um, it is. It's four blocks from my house. It's where amazing. do you live? I want to. I, I need to come visit you because you you're in the, yeah, city, you you're in the no, center I mean, of history. <laughs> well, it is. I mean, Philadelphia is the center of history. You know, I live a couple blocks, uh, you know, from Independence Hall, but I live closer to the AME Church, which is incredibly beautiful. Um, and actually, one of the best things that happened to me during the publication of Rush was that the pastor there invited me to give a talk on Martin Luther King's birthday um, to talk about Rush and Martin Luther King's birthday, which was one of the great, uh, I have to say, great moments of my life. So, But the AME Church is beautiful. It's still there. It still very much matters in the city. Um, and uh, there's a be- beautiful statue of Richard Allen out in front of it. Um, the, the church that Absalom Jones started is more folded into uh, the larger world of, of Christianity, but the the AME church is still there and it's still, you know, it's like for some people, obviously Mecca, it's the first AME church in America. Um, and then we might extend Rush's thoughts on equality, not just with African-Americans, but also with women. Talk about that if you would. Sure. So, you know, Rush uh, was raised by a single mom. His dad uh, died pretty young. He had very strong women around him. And uh, when he had the opportunity, he was and he had a lot of daughters and he was very active on behalf of women's education. Um, We have the lectures that he gave in the 1780s to start um, the first school uh, where women would get high school educations um, in the country. And he just, you know, he felt very strongly about this. There's it's interesting. There's some debate about this only because. Uh, one of the first things anybody ever read of Rush's about on this subject was a letter that he wrote to a friend of his daughter who was about to marry. Um, and this letter makes it sound like marriage is a terrible thing. You just have to wait on your husband hand and foot. And people interpreted this as being Rush's idea, that this is what Rush thought was right. Uh, what they miss, and again, it's because people don't do the homework, is that 
This letter was written to a woman that Rush thought should not marry the guy that she was marrying. Um, because at the same time, he was teaching young women in school, one of the first people to do that, and was very open about that women should, uh, you know, be, have active intellectual lives. I mean, this starts with, it's great, you know, we have all this stuff. When Rush was courting his wife, what the, one of the first things he did was he wrote her a letter saying he couldn't wait until they could read books together. And um, he was building in the house that she was going to come move in with him a library in her bedroom. And he gave her a list of the first hundred books that he was putting in the library so they could talk to them about it. And, and her mom, uh, Annis Budno Stockton, was a very well-known writer of the time. So he lived in a feminist world uh, where his wife and his mother-in-law uh, and the the mother-in-law was involved in a writing group in Philadelphia that was well known. So, you know, Rush was part of a group. Again, they they were these younger doctors who married smart women who were expected to be more than just housewives, and that was part of their life in Philadelphia and part of what he uh, tried to do, both as a as a as a public intellectual and as a doctor. Um, revealing my own personal bias here. Sure. I consider Rush's 1787 address uh, roughly nine months before the Constitution was signed to be on par with Lincoln's Gettysburg address in its ability to capture the historical moment. Uh, I'm going to read for our listeners the introduction and have you comment on the significance of these remarks on the other side. Sure. Rush writes, quote, there is nothing more common than to confound the terms of the American Revolution with those of the late American War. The American War is over, but that is far from being the case with the American Revolution. On the contrary, nothing but the first act of the great drama is closed. Your thoughts? You know, I, I agree with you of the importance of that. I, I'm not sure that Rush ever actually said those words out loud. You know, I don't think that this was a lecture. I think it was my understanding of what this piece of writing was, was that it was a it was a magazine article um, and it was written at a very important time. And the in the backstory of it, it's really interesting. Rush was afraid that the original founding fathers had lost their will to keep going, that they had put so much into the Revolutionary War and the post-Revolutionary War period. People forget kind of sucked. I mean, it was very difficult after the war was over and America was really floundering in the four or five years until they wrote the Constitution. Rush wrote that to let people know that they needed to double down on the future of America, that just winning the Revolutionary War was not enough. And I, I believe that he understood that because I, this is my view of him as a doctor. You know, doctors know, never think that everything is going to be solved. So I always thought that that piece of writing was not only to get people excited and and more involved in the constitutional process, but to remind them that America was never going to be perfected, that we were always going to be fighting the American Revolution, and we had to we had to really focus on that. But you know, the other part, Rush just a really good writer, um, but that piece uh, ran in a, in a magazine as a curtain raiser to the Constitutional Convention because at that time. People like Washington weren't—they weren't sure they were coming. You know, some of them were like, "Hey, we did our thing. You know, let's let let the next group do this." But Rush knew that if the superstars of the Revolutionary War did not come and do the Constitution, that America could still be fumbled. And I think that these guys lived in a time when, all the way through their lives, they always had to remind that America could still be fumbled. And I think it's a good thing for us to remember: America can always be fumbled. You know, we can always mess it up if we don't pay attention to what is important. And 
you know, if you look at Russia's life and look at his interactions, especially with with uh, Adams and Jefferson, a lot of their private writing is about this. Like, did we actually get it done or is it going to fall apart? And, you know, keep in mind that people didn't even pay attention to American history until the 1820s and 1830s. Before that, it wasn't clear that America was necessarily going to make it. So people didn't pay a lot of attention to history until, you know, it was like 50 years in. It's like, okay, maybe we are going to make it. So they always had a concern about that. And I think that Russia's piece of writing, the one you quoted, is really something that always stirs me. And um, and I think also stirred uh, a lot of people to action who maybe would have said like, okay, I'm not going back down to Philadelphia again and doing this constitution thing. And imagine what would have happened. We, we talked earlier about Russia's life sort of aligning uh with with the American important events in the American narrative, um, there 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 are two things I want I want to talk about in particular. The first was Thomas Paine's common sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was common sense, and why is it significant, and what was Russia's contribution to it? Sure. So um, Thomas Paine was a young uh, freelance writer who showed up in Philadelphia um, in in seventeen seventy. Five, I believe, or early 1776, 1775, yes. And Rush met him at a bookstore. And uh, the bookstore owner was friends of his. Uh, Rush had actually been planning a pamphlet on independence himself. But as, as we mentioned earlier, Rush had written a very controversial pamphlet against slavery um, and against racism, which had cost him a huge number of his patients. And so while he believed very strongly that somebody needed to explain independence to the masses because people in philadelphia especially were afraid of independence because philadelphia was the biggest city of non-independent america they had the most to lose by separating from england um they hoped the freedom would be worth it but they had the most to lose economically so rush had actually started a pamphlet about this and he he thought it would be unwise to finish it because he probably he figured then he'd lose all his patience he met Payne. he and Payne agreed on a lot of these things and so he encouraged Payne to write the pamphlet and in the fall of 1775, they met frequently. Payne would bring him pages and Rush would edit them. And um, they they worked all through the fall. And then uh, Payne finished the draft. Rush edited it. Rush actually found the printer for it. And Rush actually gave it its title, Common Sense. Uh, it had originally been called something else. And he also shared it with Franklin. There's some controversy about who it was shared with. Uh, because, you know, keep in mind, when Common Sense was published, no one took credit for it because it was, you know, it was like you're going to be killed if you wrote it. Um, so they finished it. They Rush got it printed. It came out, interestingly, the day before Rush got married. So right, it was a busy week for Benjamin Rush. Um, and uh, then they all had to, not, to deny they had anything to do with it. Um, no one, of course, thought Thomas Paine had written it. They all thought that John Adams or Benjamin Franklin had written it. And um, so it was a big secret, but it became unbelievably popular. And uh, it was, again, it was a pamphlet. It became unbelievably popular uh, in part because the message was so strong, in part because Payne, as a freelance writer who wanted to make money, um, actually resold Common Sense to a second printer and let the two printers compete against each other. So there were like dueling ads for Common Sense in the newspapers during that time. But by the time the Continental Congress came together, Common sense had become this unbelievably powerful piece of writing. What, what's cool about it is that no one told the story of it at the time. After Payne died, Rush um, wrote a memoir specifically for his uh, kids. 
which was suppressed by the family for many, many years. That memoir explained what his relationship had been like with Payne and how Common Sense had been written. So that information came much, much later uh, for our understanding of it. No one at the time knew that Russia's involvement with it, what it was. But it wouldn't have been surprising because, again, Rush was considered like the best writer of his time. You know, a ver a, somebody who could explain complicated ideas to the public. So it wouldn't have been surprising. But at that time, again, everybody was saying, no, I didn't write it. I didn't write it because it was way too dangerous. The, the second thing I want to bring, uh, have you comment on, you touched on it earlier, were the letters uh, between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. And talk about the role that Rush played in that correspondence and, and, and remind our listeners why it was necessary to get them back together, please. Sure. So again, as I mentioned before, the 1790s is a period we overlook, but 1790s was one of Benjamin Rush's happiest, most fascinated periods because his two closest friends in the revolution, Adams and Jefferson, were in town almost all the time. Um, the two of them didn't get along that well. They were on opposite sides of many political things, but they were friends. They had been close friends, and they obviously believed in the future of America, and Rush was often found himself in between them. And there were many fascinating dialogues that happened during the 1790s. I will say that as a historian, the, the only bad thing about the 1790s is that these guys were all in the same town, so there are many fewer letters. But what was happening was, you know, Adams became the second president after Washington. Adams had a very controversial presidency. Um, and then uh, in 1800, Adams ran for uh, re-election against Jefferson, against his friend. And Rush was sort of caught in the middle of this. So unbelievably dramatic moment in America, unbelievably dramatic moment between these three guys, uh, because one, you know, one of them, you know, Jefferson was ultimately one. Two, the next president was not going to serve in Philadelphia. They were going to go create Washington, D.C. So Rush was in this unbelievably heady time with these guys. And it was, a, it was a difficult time for Rush. You know, after the yellow fever epidemic, Rush's uh, reputation was really hurt. The media went after him in a big way, in part because of his friendships with Jefferson and Adams. And his, his uh, practice was almost destroyed. Adams had to give him a job as secretary of the mint just so he would have some money. So it was a very controversial and very dramatic time. And then Jefferson wins and they all leave. And Rush is left alone in Philadelphia. Uh, Adams isn't speaking to any of them. And Adams doesn't speak to any of them for a number of years. And Jefferson is still in uh, touch with Rush by letter. Um, but he and Jeff he and Adams won't speak. So uh, Rush doesn't hear from Adams for five years. And then uh, five years later, Adams reaches out to him and says, hey, you know, we should probably talk before one of us dies. Adams was older than Rush. Of course, he thought it would be him. Adams was by this time very depressed. His family was very worried about him and encouraged them to reach out. I mean, like keep in mind, Rush was like their shrink too. So their correspondence began five years later in 1805. Fascinating correspondence. We have it all. Um, and it's very clear that Rush is both trying to get Adams to tell his life story. He wants Adams to write a memoir. Adams never writes a memoir, but these letters become his memoir. Rush is trying to help him treat his depression because he's very, very depressed. During this time, his daughter, you know, Nabby gets breast cancer. Rush helps treat her breast cancer via letter because, again, they never saw each other again. But over these years, Rush got it in his head that if Adams and Jefferson couldn't be friends again, this meant that partisanship had already destroyed America. Now, keep in mind, you know, Alexander Hamilton invented partisanship in the 1790s. And partisanship is obviously something we're very afraid of today. 
Um, but the, the fear of it is hardwired into America. And it's nowhere better hardwired than in the relationship between Adams and Jefferson. So Rush felt that if he could not heal this relationship, he wasn't sure what the future of America could be because he considered Adams and Jefferson to be the writers of the Constitution, the writers of American freedom. And if being on opposite sides in political parties had so damaged their relationship and their friendship, but they couldn't be friends anymore because of politics, what did that say? So he began this sort of um, family founding father family therapy uh, through letters, which he did for years. And he really worked both of them very hard. And whenever he heard anything, you know, he said, I bumped into a guy who said he bumped into Jefferson. Jefferson said he still loved Adams. And, you know, some of this, this writing is, it's really so personal. Uh, Rush's wife once described the relationship between Adam, the letters between Adams, Jefferson, and Rush as less the letters of founding fathers than uh, notes being passed in class between teenage girls. Um, because it, it was very personal and sometimes very childish. Um, but Rush worked really hard on it. And in 1812, 1812, so 12 years later, he finally convinced uh, Jefferson and Adams to start writing to each other. And they did. And he did it because he thought one of them could die at any time. Ironically, Rush died the next year. He died in 1813. And they lived another 13 years. Um, and they corresponded for another 13 years. So the, the correspondence between the three of them while Rush was alive, then the correspondence between the two of them after Rush died, forms an incredibly important part of our understanding of American history. It's many things got recorded in real time, and many more things come out of this correspondence, which is some of which was available at the time, some of which, as I said, didn't become available until the 1950s, which is part of the reason why people got interested in Adams again in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. When he was, you know, Adams would have been considered a lesser founding father until the HBO series in 2001. Um, so everybody can be a lesser. I mean, maybe Benjamin Rush will get his own HBO series sometime. Um, I'm actually friendly in Santa Fe with the guy who wrote the John Adams series. So I'm always trying to convince him he should go back and look at Benjamin Rush. But this relationship, you know, you could write a book just about the ends of these founding friendships because there it's so personal it's so interesting it's tied up in their health it's tied up in religion it's tied up in the understanding of the politics of america the beginnings of international politics because america is then an international war it, it really has everything and the other thing that's good about it is these three guys are all really good writers and so their writing is very clear a very powerful very passionate and um really worth looking at i mean i ended up the, the, the last quarter of my book ended up being taken over by their their relationship as old guys because I just thought it was so interesting and so different and just I just never knew about it before. Uh, speaking of your book, uh, I want the time we have left, I, I'm curious, with so many directions you could have gone to tell the Benjamin Rush story, how did you decide on which directions to go and and not get bogged down in the weeds in trying to tell the Benjamin Rush story? Well, you know, look, there, there are two kinds of history writers. There are people who are historians who are, have tenure at universities and write history books. And there are people like me. I mean, I come from a generation of people who grew up writing for magazines um, and then later started writing uh, narrative history. And uh, I believe that that trend began um, – it began when Vanity Fair uh, started writing, having more historical pieces, and I worked for Vanity Fair in the 90s. Uh, but I think ultimately it was kicked off both by the 
by the John Adams biography by David McCulloch, which is the you know the great narrative biography of a founding father, uh, and by books like by Eric Larson, like Devil in the White City. So one of the things that is it's just a writing thing. What you just described is just a writing thing. You don't get bogged down, you know, in things because the structure of the thing is to keep moving forward in the narrative. So you tell the reader enough so they understand what's going on politically or philosophically or religiously. Um, and if, if it needs, they need to read more, you give them chapter notes at the end of the book and suggestions on things to read, but you don't stop the narrative because the goal is to write for people who are experts and for people who know nothing about the subject. And that's, you know, that's my training as a non, as a magazine writer, you know, uh, working first at Philadelphia Magazine, later at GQ and Vanity Fair, Smithsonian, lots of different places. But that's what magazine writers who turn into book writers uh, tend to want to do and do differently than historians um, who don't think there's anything wrong with getting caught in the weeds. I mean, in a way, they think that's the job. So everybody's job is different. We read their books and go through the weeds, and then we figure out how to not keep the reader in the weeds. Um but that's, I mean, I take that as a great compliment that you felt that that's what I did. But, you know, the goal is to be able to move from subject to subject and from time period to time period and make it personal, make it be feel about people and not just ideas um, and balance the whole thing. And uh, certainly it makes for longer books. I don't think my publisher thought that this book would end up being as long as it was, but it, it ended up, they, they never gave me any hassles about it. Um, because, you know, they felt that it continued to be interesting. And as long as you're not getting caught in the weeds, but you're still moving forward with the narrative, I think people will stay with you, whether the book is 300 or 400 or 500 or 600 pages. And um, so the, the only question that I always have is that do the people like me who are not trained historians, how well do we do history? And, you know, when people started doing this, they were reading books. Now they do a lot of it on the internet. And sometimes use secondary and tertiary sources that are not right. Um, there's a lot of things in history that have been repeated in lots of different books that if you went and back and looked at the original material through today's eyes, you wouldn't view it that way. So part of the challenge, I think, when you have people that are not lifelong historians is to make sure that they do real history research and they, they question everything. Look, many of the things about Benjamin Rush, I just didn't repeat things that are in earlier writings that I now know to be wrong um, because people did not have access to certain materials. So it's a really interesting challenge, but it's fun. And, you know, the feedback on the book and, and the history book I wrote before it about, uh, about Fred Harvey and the American West um, has been that this is a kind of writing that people like. And if they can find this kind of writing in the subjects they're looking for, that's what they want. So I'm glad to be, you know, a, a part of this generation that started out in magazines and in newspaper features and have moved over to writing credible history books that are also narratively exciting. Well, I'm just waiting for you to write the screenplay on Benjamin Rush. Uh, so uh, it'll be well worth it. Stephen Freed, I want to thank you so much for joining us today on the public. Around. Much appreciated, sir. Thank you. It was a fascinating interview. I, I, it's a terrific show. The public morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Those listening to the Public Rally on WSNC 
can also listen on a tap. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.